Ah, uh, good morning again. Yeah, so good to see you guys. So good to have you back, for sure. Um, yeah, so obviously I've been in a season of travel, actually, since I got back from my sabbatical, trying to check out all our different campuses, make sure they're doing well. Um, last week I was at Crosswalk Portland for their one-year anniversary of when they started weekly, and over 200 people there, and Pastor Patty and his team, Pastor Uriel, Pastor Lydia, are doing amazing jobs there. Pa- Patty went from one person, just him, to, three, to two staff now with him. I, like, he, he doesn't even know what to do. He's like, what do I do with these people? It's like, put them to work, I think, is the, is the job. Um, so that was really exciting. This week, I was actually in Chattanooga with um, our executive pastor, Pastor Ron Aguilera. We were out there meeting with their conference and talking with their teams. I got back last night. He's preaching for them today, over 500 people in their, um, in their services as well. So just really excited about what God is doing. Lots of conversations about how God is moving. And that's, that's you know, we're, we're beginning to sense that momentum again, which is really Really exciting. By the way, we have this conference coming up um, October 21 through 23. Now, you are church members and you're like, should we come to the conference or not? I think it would be cool if you did, but totally understand if you can't. However, you are absolutely invited to the worship night on Friday night to church like we normally do. Please don't not come to church because we're having a conference. That would feel weird that all these people came from around the world to see what we do and then you not show up. So make sure you show up on Saturday, please, um, just to make us look good. And then um, lastly, we've got the block party on Saturday night, which is going to be amazing. You know, we usually have a couple thousand people there and we there's food trucks that are going to happen. It's going to be it's going to be really good this year. So we want you to make sure that you're with us on Friday night and Saturday night and, of course, church on the 22nd. So that's all the business. We're in this momentum series as we're talking about how God creates momentum in your life, in your ministry, in your faith community. And we have a guiding text that we defined a bit, I think, two weeks ago. And it is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It begins like this. Therefore, remember when you begin with a therefore, there's a bunch that went before it. What went before it is by faith, right? By faith, Noah. By faith, Moses. By faith, Abraham. It's all this idea that God, when you lean into the faith that you have in this God, he's going to build momentum. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd or cloud, depending on the text that you're reading, crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight That slows us down, and I know Pastor Ron talked about that a bit last week, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And I know he spoke a little bit about that here as well. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Obviously, this is how we build momentum, right? By keeping our eyes on Jesus. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But here's the part I want to emphasize today, and I'm just going to apologize before I do it, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Because I don't know about you, but I hate sermons about sin, right? Almost as much as I hate sermons about forgiveness, because then I got to forgive. Those are hard for me. But this part, especially the sin that so easily, um, easily trips us up. Nobody likes sermons about sin. I don't. And I got to tell you, there's horror stories about people, pastors who have preached sermons about sin and have been um, pretty profoundly offensive in the way that they talk about it. In fact, I've had a lot of calls with people 
across the United States who have wanted to start Lovewell groups. And partly the narrative has been, and I will say this has been a few times, it's not every time, but a few times, I, I've had the conversation where it's, yeah, so we were at our local church and the pastor was talking about sin and then he started to point to people and tell everybody what their sin was. Yeah, no, that happens, like for real. And I was like, no, that, no, no. And he's like, yeah, he told Joe this. I was like, well, I don't need to know. Um, right, this is tragic, right? It's horror stories. It's, it, in, my, in my opinion, it's professional malpractice, right? It breaks people, destroys churches. So why do we focus on sin so often? It's not like we're interested in it or maybe we are interested in it. Why are we so focused and really so preoccupied even with sin? I think there's a few reasons. The first reason is pretty simple. I think sin is kind of tangible, right? It's this tangible thing. We know when we're sinning. Uh, you know, I, I talked about online, I talked about forgiveness. I know Pastor Ron talked a bit about forgiveness as well. Forgiveness feels a bit intangible. We like to, we like to be forgiven. It's hard to feel forgiven sometimes, but sin is real. Like you can, you can see it, you can taste it, you can feel its results. It's like the difference between eating a bunch of carrots. You know, you eat a bunch of carrots and you know you're healthy, you just don't feel all that healthy. But if you eat way too many French fries or onion rings, you know you sinned. <laughs> right? At the end of that meal, you're like, oh, that was a bad idea. Right? You know. For sin is kind of tangible that way. It's, it's something that, well, because it's tangible, it feels manageable. It feels like I can manage it a little bit. If it's tangible, then I can take care of it. I can manage it. Um, it it's kind of like having a car that doesn't really work, but you know how to kind of make it work. Have you ever had a car like that? Where you like, you get in and you're like, ah, it's not starting. So you hit the dashboard three times. You know, you say a little prayer to Jesus. You open the door twice and then you hit the passenger seat and then it starts. Right? And you're like, no, this is fine. This is fine. It's a messed up car, but it's fine. I can manage it. And then somebody, like, you, you, somebody needs to borrow your car, and you're like, okay, here. This is what works for me. You're going to have to start the car, then you're going to have to pray, then you're going to have to hit the dashboard, you're going to have to open the door, and then you're going to have to hit the passenger seat. And the person looks at you like, that's the dumbest, get a new car. And you're like, yeah, yeah, but I can manage it. It's fine. It'll probably work. That's how we function with sin. It's all this brokenness, but we're like, no, nah, we can probably manage it, right? We spend all our time and money making sure we can manage it and um, all our time and resources making sure we can manage this, but you're simply hoping it works. So sin feels kind of tangible, and if it's tangible, then we can kind of manage it. But what we don't understand is that the reason why we're doing those things is because it keeps the power in our hands. The reason why we talk about it, because we think we can control this tangible thing. And it keeps the power with us. If I can just manage my sin, that's all I need to do. If I can manage my sin, it'll be great. The problem is we get into a really negative feedback loop most of the time, don't we? We have a tendency to be like, wake up in the morning, pray to God, God help me not sin today. And then we go throughout our day and we know by like six minutes in, like we've sinned. So by the end of the night, you pray again and we're like, God, sorry. Let's give it a try tomorrow. <laughs> right? After about a thousand of those, you realize maybe I'm not such good at managing sin and you're not sure what to do with it. But I will say this. It is important that we recognize our sin. To recognize our sin is good. To wallow in our sin is not so good. Right? I don't think we're called to wallow in it. We're called to something much greater than that. 
greater that, that we can carry along with us. I mean, in the series guide this week, we moved on to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at that as well, where Paul's kind of working out his theology of sin and of grace and of freedom. But before we get there, i got to ask you a question. What does freedom in Christ look like for you? I mean, really, what, what is freedom in Christ? How do you experience it? How do you live in it? And I want you to keep this question in your head as we look at these texts. Because I have a tendency to believe that most of us don't experience real freedom in Christ for some really pretty tangible reasons. This is what Paul says, chapter 6, verse 11. He says, so you should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Right? Paul uses these words very specifically. Death is final. The hardest part for me when my father died was just, I mean, it was right then. Like, that's it. It's, it's done. We're just supposed to leave and I can't call him. I can't text him. It's com he's completely cut off to me at this point. Paul uses the term dead because he wants you to know that you are now cut off from the power of sin, but you're resurrected and you're alive to God through Christ Jesus. The weird part is, and I don't know why we do this, I don't know why do we resurrect the power of sin in our lives so often. And by the way, this is not just why do I sin again, because when we have a discussion about sin, one of the things we have a tendency to do is we think about our behavior and our sinful behavior, and we think that overcoming sin and overcoming the power of sin in our lives means that we will never sin again with our hands. But that's actually a really diminished view of what sin actually is. In fact, that kind of view can lead you to perfectionism, to this idea that all I need to do to be, to be loved by God is to eradicate sin completely out of my life. When you do that, you misunderstand sin. And the reason why I know this is I was looking through my dad's stuff, and I came up with his seminary notes from Dr. Edward Heppenstahl, who wrote... Christ our High Priest, some phenomenal books on grace and forgiveness of sin. Back in the 60s in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, helped change the trajectory of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And literally on my desk right now are my dad's notes from Heppenstall's class. And he spends 15 pages talking about why perfectionism will never work. But one of the statements that he makes is that when you think sin is just what you do, you misunderstand sin. So what we do is we become managers of our hands and we stop worrying about our head and our hearts where sin resides and where sin has power over us. And we think that if all we have to do is stop sinning with our hands, then we've managed our sin. But that's not exactly the way it works. Just not doing a sin doesn't mean it doesn't have control over you. In fact, in some ways, constantly being worried about not doing that sin gives sin more control over you. We'll get more to that. And Paul says it this way, do not let sin control the way you live. I wish you would have gone for, for, forward with that. I wish, you would have, I wish you would have said a little more. He would have expounded on a little bit. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not let sin control your behavior. We're easy with that one. But do not let sin control your heart. 
Do not let sin control your head. Do not give in to its sinful desires. Again, behavior, but it's more than that. Let's, let's take this apart, right? How does, how does sin control the way you live? And this is pretty, I think, pretty simple to understand. The first way that sin controls the way we live is that it has us living in failure so often. Sin has a tendency to make us believe that we are actually failures, that we get stuck in a cycle of failure and then managing that failure, managing that sin. It's like I said before, it's the sin management. We, we can't seem to find victory over sin or else we'd never sin again, even though it's not said anywhere that that's what's going to happen. And so what ends up happening is that we, we recognize the failure that we're living under. And you know what that leads to? That leads to self-loathing. This failure begins to lead us to hate ourselves and we begin to find everything that's wrong with ourselves, right? We just, we, we constantly are inward focused. This leads to a pretty incredible narcissism. And it's weird because we think that thinking about ourselves, even if we think about ourselves poorly, isn't narcissism, but having that much focus on ourselves is a very narcissistic way to live. Because you wake up in the morning and you don't say, what is God going to do today? You wake up in the morning and you say, how am I going to do today? How am I going to manage my sin? Not, thank God that Jesus took away my sin, but how am I going to manage this sin? How am I going to manage this behavior? And then you spend all day worried about not sinning with your hands, failing and leading back into that self-loathing. So you know what you do after a while? You can only hate yourself for so long. So what you do is you turn that hatred to somebody else. Because if you can judge somebody else for their sin, you're going to feel a little bit better about yourself. This is why churches become cesspools of judgment on other people. It's not because we don't like other people. It's because we don't like ourselves. It's because we've forgotten that we've been freed from sin. We haven't allowed that freedom to actually take root in our lives, in our heart, in our, our head, in our hands. What we've done is we've said, God, I wish you were stronger so I could stop sinning. But since you're not, maybe it's my fault. Maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe you're not that wrong, that you're not that strong. And then ultimately we turn that towards somebody else. Paul says this in Romans 6, 13. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. When he says don't let any part of your body, he's saying all of it, not just your hands. Paul is not just approaching someone's behavior. He's approaching the way that we think and the way that we feel and the attitude that we take in life. Get out of that negative feedback loop that is constantly happening. How? Instead, give yourselves completely to God. Give yourselves over to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So you use your whole body, everything that you are, as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. This reminds us of Romans chapter 12, right? The idea that our life is not even our own, that we are not our own. And we have given ourselves entirely to God as our spiritual act of worship. And by the way, this should bring us to an understanding of all that we can do for God rather than all those things we can't do for ourselves. It's a positive feedback loop rather than a negative one. Listen, if you've ever watched somebody fall in love with Jesus, you can, see, you can see the burden being lifted off them physically when they begin to understand the grace of Jesus Christ. We talk about, well, we don't talk about it much, but their countenance changes. Their face changes. There's a light that they didn't have before when they finally understand grace, that Jesus died for them and saved them completely. 
And they don't have to toil and work for their salvation anymore, but it's been given as a free gift of God. Listen, never underestimate the power of having something positive in your life. And we as Christians have access to that positivity all the time, but I gotta tell you, sometimes you need to be the light that people see. Sometimes you need to be the person who says, I'm gonna give some light to somebody. I'm gonna text them this morning and tell them how great I think they are. Or, or I'm gonna make sure I smile at the person who just cut me off in line at the grocery store and be like, I guess you're in a hurry to eat those Cheetos. Cheetos, I don't know. Cheetos, why not? If you can't find that light in your life, I, I, I want to recommend a couple things. First of, all, first of all, you need to go talk to somebody. Because if you've ever been through depression, you know it's very difficult to get out of that yourself. And you need to talk to a professional. Um, and, and I wholly advocate for that. It's great to talk to a pastor. That's great. Sometimes you need more than that. So I want to make sure that you understand that that's something that we think is part of being a community of belonging and making sure that people get the help that they need. That's important. So if you can't get out of a really dark depression um, and that negative feedback loop, go see somebody. And by the way, the second thing is this. You just need to be that somebody for someone in your life. You need to be that light and that grace and that joy. Because the thing is, we so often live as if sin is our master and in Romans 6.14, Paul actually says it this way, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Amen? amen. amen. This is a good one, right? This is a, if you're going to say amen anywhere in the sermon, it's here. Right? This is a good place for it. And it's not my words. These are Paul's words. Okay, but if you grew up like me in the church, you've got that little be careful voice. You know that be careful voice? You know that be careful voice, right? Sin is no longer your master. Great, that's awesome. For, you're no longer, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Be careful. Be careful because Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish the law. We like that text a lot, right? Because that one's great. Because then everything we just said doesn't matter because you still are under the law. Right? That's what we do. We go, oh, that sounds great. I really like that. But be careful because we're still under the law. Right? Paul also says this other funny thing that I think is appropriate here. Paul says, and it, and it kills us, our be careful voice dies with this statement. Paul says, you know, all things are permissible. Paul says that. Those are the words. All things are permissible. <laughs> we don't like that. We don't even know what to do with that. We're like, all things? Yeah, I can just eat ice cream all the time? Yeah. All things are permissible. Not all things are beneficial. You will get sick. But yeah, go ahead. We do not like that as Christians, and we, particularly Seventh-day Adventists, because we like the law, because we keep it. I mean, we keep the fourth one. That one we're pretty clear on. The rest we get a little shady, but the fourth one, we even guard its edges. I don't even know what that means. We all have a be careful voice. I wish, rather than a be careful voice, we had... Uh, is that a good idea voice, right? We have that all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. So be thoughtful, right? Sin is no longer your master for you. No longer live under sin. The sin you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. And you don't have to be careful with that statement. That statement you can live into largely. 
This is encouragement that Paul is giving people. He's trying to give them that light so they can stop managing their sin and they can start living in the freedom and grace of Christ. And by the way, John actually reiterates this idea that we're free because he says, so if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. But what does freedom mean in your life? So let's ask two questions, right? First of all, what has Christ freed you from? And if you look at the Greek, you will discover the word free can mean to liberate or exempt from liability, right? That means that this verse could read that I just read, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Whom the Son liberates or exempts from liability will be really liberated and really exempted from liability. Like it's for real. You can trust it. It's something that Jesus has done for you. He has freed you. So now you are certainly free. So what has he freed you from? First of all, he's freed you from your captivity to sin. Right? The very definition of a captive is someone who is confined to their sin. That's exactly what we were. You and I were prisoners held under the bondage of sin. We were held captive by the impulses of sin. We were slaves to the instincts of sin. We had no power to overcome the influence of sin. Sin was our ruler and it held, of ca and held us captive. But no longer. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer a captive. You are no longer a prisoner to sin. It doesn't control you anymore. It has no rule over you. You are free. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. See, if there's anything that should give momentum to your life, it's this. The sin that trips us up. The baggage that weighs us down. This is the, the crux of that verse that says, listen, you want to accelerate what you're doing for God? You want to accelerate the way that you live your life? You want to accelerate the joy, the happiness, the peace, the, the, the compassion in your life? That's going to mean that you've got to let go of the stuff that's carrying you down. And what's carrying you down is that sin. And by the way, it doesn't matter anymore because you've been freed from it. Right? That's what this means. It freed you from your captivity and it changed your trajectory. You've been freed from the trajectory that you had. Romans 6.23 says it this way, for the wages of, wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your trajectory has gone from a downward trajectory to an upward trajectory. Sin has no control over you. You are not liable for the sin anymore. You are not going to have to pay that price because that price has already been paid. And I get it. I get it. Oh, yeah, I like that. Keep doing that. I get it. You're, you're like, yeah, we get it. We get it. That's why we became Christians in the first place. Okay, then live like it. Live like you're free. Stop living like you, it still has control over you. Listen, if your credit card company called you today, and probably none of you have credit card debt, but if your credit card company called you today and said, hey, Joe, just so you know, we're releasing you from that debt. You'd be like, can I get that in writing? Yep, we're emailing it to you right now. We'll text it to you. You are freed from your debt. That $10,000 credit on your credit card bill, it's debit on your credit card bill, it's gone. You don't have to pay it anymore. You know what you would do? Two things. You would go, thank you, and hang up really quickly. Then you would move and change your phone number. <laughs> so, so they could never find you again. Because you've been freed, and now you're gonna live like you're free. Unfortunately, a lot of times you'd go run up another credit card, but, but uh, that's, the metaphor only goes so far. We, however, have a tendency that even though we have been freed, 
we live as if we're still in debt. And that doesn't make any sense because your trajectory has changed. And by the way, with that change in trajectory, your vitality has changed. The guilt and shame of sin, you don't carry it anymore. Because, I mean, we've all experienced that feeling of guilt. We've all experienced that feeling of shame. Have you ever repented but felt like you needed to repent again and again because you feel so bad? You want to make sure that God really forgave you? Christ freed you from that. You can believe in what he says. You can believe that you are a child of God, not a slave to fear and sin. But let's ask the second question. What has Christ freed you for? Because we often talk about what Christ freed us from, but we don't often talk, or not as much, do we talk about what God has freed us for. One of the things God has freed us for is he has freed us to have a freedom to live. It's your capacity, right? One of the reasons it's so important to understand that you are free from bondage, penalty, and guilt of sin is because it now increases your capacity to live. Jesus wants to increase your capacity to love. He wants to increase your capacity to have joy. He wants to increase your capacity to experience peace and to love life and others. Yeah. What he wants you to do is he wants you, he wants to increase your capacity, especially to have a relationship with him. When Jesus comes and sets you free, you don't have to hide anymore. Remember that story of Adam and Eve? They used to walk with Jesus in the cool of the garden in the evening. And then they sin, and what do they do? They hide from God because they're afraid to talk to God anymore. They're afraid to be in front of God. Which, by the way, I love that story because Adam and Eve had never hid from anyone before. And there's always this, like, God knew where they were in the garden. My bet is they were just really bad at playing hide-and-seek. God says, hey, in fact, in James 4, 8, it says this, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Your capacity for the relationship with Jesus has changed completely. You've been freed for a greater relationship with God than you've ever had before. A greater relationship with one another than you've ever had before. You've also been freed for your activity, the freedom to serve. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, think about that for a moment. The good works that God has for you to do were prepared in advance. They were even prepared in advance of your salvation. God knew he was coming for you, and he knew eventually you were going to say yes. And once you said yes, he knew that you were going to drop all the sin and all that other stuff that you had in your hands, and he knew he needed to fill it with something. So what is he going to fill it with? He's going to fill it with the good works that he created for you way before you even knew you needed God. God's been preparing for this relationship for a long time. And what he wants for you is to live differently. Your activity to change, your capacity for relationship and love and hope and joy, all those things are to change. And they won't change if you continually focus on your sin. So why do we focus on sin so often? Why do we pretend as if we haven't been saved, pretend as if we haven't been forgiven? Right? Some would even, some would even say, you know what? Sin actually has a place in this situation. In fact, what we should do is we should sin a little more so that grace could increase, right? He continues in Romans 6.15. He says, well, then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does this mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. And later on in the conversation, he says, should we sin more so that grace increases? Don't be stupid. That's a dumb argument. No. Seek a right. Listen, uh, you're going to sin, all right? Can we just accept that? There are moments when your hands are going to sin. There's moments when your head and your heart's going to sin. 
Let's just accept that. But you've been freed from the rule of that sin. That will become an exception, not a rule, as we continually seek righteousness. And you can spend your time in that negative feedback loop trying to manage your sin, trying to figure it out, trying to figure out why you don't have victory over sin when victory over sin has already been given to you. You just need to accept it and live in it. But be careful. Is what that voice in our head says. Can't be true that all things are permissible. Can't be true that we're no under we're no longer under the structure of the law. How can that be true? Listen, the law has one purpose to point out your sin. Once you know it and you've been forgiven of it, the law's a great guide, but it A won't convict you anymore. And B won't make you a continued slave to sin. If you are free from the burden of sin, my question is this, why are you picking it back up? If you have been freed from that, that sin that trips us up, why don't you continue to walk in the freedom that God has given you and the momentum that God has given you? You are no longer a slave to fear. You're no longer a slave to this sin. You're now a child of God. Amen. And I, I think we get so used to it, right? I think we get so used to hearing this that we're like, yeah, 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 we know that. Let's get on to something else. Don't get on to something else. Don't move to another place. Stay in this place, this place of freedom and of grace and of joy and of hope. Understanding that they can't do anything. You cannot be taken away from the love of God. That Jesus saved you completely and now wants to accelerate your motion move you in momentum towards him, towards love and grace and hope and peace. And the reason why this is, is because you don't have to be a slave anymore. So if you are freed from the burden of sin, stop picking it up. Sing with us today.